following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 8, 1 through 20. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hadish, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pahath Moab, Eliohaniah, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him fifty men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshaiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him seventy men. Of the sons of Shephathiah, Jebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Benai, Shelomith, and the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebei, Zechariah, the son of Bebei, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonakam, those who came later, their names being Eliphalet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvai, Uthai, and Zechar, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shema'ai, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edu, the leading man at the place of Kasaphia, telling them what to say to Edu and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Kasaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. Also Heshabiah, and with him Jeshaiah of the sons of Murai, with his kinsmen and their sons. Besides, 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Hear the word of the Lord. We've got ourselves a flyover passage today. A flyover passage. You know what I'm talking about? When you're doing the Bible reading plan and you come to a passage like Ezra chapter 2 
Ezra chapter eight, a bunch of names stacked up and, and probably like the third or fourth name that you find that you definitely don't know how to pronounce. You're like, I'm just gonna go ahead and skim this one, right? Anybody else? Just me, okay, okay, great. It's a flyover passage. And honestly, as I was doing my study this morning, or not this morning, that'd be a little bit late to the game. <laughs> On Monday morning, I was sitting down with my Bible open, reading through some commentaries, trying to figure out, okay, Lord, what is it that you have for us this week? And I was tempted, being at Palm Sunday and all, to jump into the, the triumphal entry text to kind of get our hearts geared up and ready to go for Holy Week. And just as I was getting ready to jump ship, I had this epiphany. The, the Lord, not like a, the heavens open and a beam of light comes down, speaks to me, but the Lord spoke to me in a sense and showed me that this is a crucial passage. This is a crucial passage for us to understand the story of Ezra. Now for the last, well, pretty much for the whole year, we've been in the book of Ezra. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter in this sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins, where God's people had veered off into unfaithfulness and God's judgment had been executed. They got exported into Babylonian exile and God graciously does not turn away from them, but turns to them. His spirit moves, he stirs them up and calls them back home to rebuild the ruins. Now, for us to see the story of rebuilding the ruins, we must understand how chapter eight fits into this story. And if we want to be people who see, pray for, and work for reformation, we must come to grips with this passage here too. If we miss this, if we, we miss the significance of this passage and how it fits in the story, we miss a lot. We're gonna jump from A to X, real quick. We're going to miss all of the things that connect, that get us to that end point. And if we miss it in this text, it's likely that we too will miss the next reformation. The reformation that I believe that God wants to bring here to this church, to our households, to this city, to our society, it's going to fly over us just like people fly over the Quad Cities. Which is you know, sorry for them, because this is a great city. <laughs> Reformation is what happens when earth becomes like heaven. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray for it, and not like a, you know, fingers crossed, maybe someday, but in a way that actually gives ourselves to the good works which we've been called for, that we've been saved to do. This is where a society, a people, recognize and reorganize their life according to the word of God. It's where we feast to flourish, which is the slogan for this whole year. It's a process of rebuilding the ruins. It's a story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we can long for reformation, and we ought to long for and work for reformation. But we must know that if we're not reforming, there's only one other alternative. If we're not reforming, we're falling apart. The only alternative to reformation is dilapidation. It's entropy. It's the gradual unraveling of things. We are either reforming according to the word of God or we are unraveling without it. Those are the only two options. And this is actually why Jesus laments the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. He, he weeps over, he looks at the city, it says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. He talks about how they, they killed the, pro, or the prophets, they, they pushed away the people who came in the, the name of the Lord. They, they had a resistance to the word of God and because of that, the city had become desolate. Entropy. And this is why Christians, it's right for us to lament our society and our culture when there's an absence of the word of God. It's why we, we can look at the world, look at our, our city even, and see these dying and failing churches and grieve and lament over them. There's been a diversion, a departing from the word of God. But thankfully, God does not leave us in the pile of rubble. God 
is a redeemer. He restores the broken. He pieces back together that which has been ruined. And he doesn't do it off by himself, though certainly in our salvation, that is all the work of God. But when he's talking about societal and culture redeeming, God doesn't just airdrop it in. He calls people to join him. This is the good works which have been prepared beforehand, before you were even saved. This is what God calls his people into. We're told that Christians have the ministry of reconciliation. This, this ministry, this work of setting the world right with God. What we see today in Ezra chapter 8 is the first people who are called to this reformation work are men. The first ones called up to the plate to give themselves to reforming a household, reforming the temple, the church, reforming a society are men. It's, it's men, dads. And this follows a biblical pattern that you see throughout the entirety of scripture. Men are called up to lead. You look at the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam the responsibility to take all of the raw material that God created, to fashion it, to, to work it, to tend to it, to beautify it, to repurpose it for something that flourishes and grows and leads to beauty. Now, this has been going on throughout the whole book of Ezra. God calls specific men to spearhead this, this rebuilding work. God calls a lot of men, as we see in this text, to step up right behind them. As chapter 7 ends, we, we preached this last week, but Ezra is rejoicing in the hand of God who is upon them to go back and to rebuild a Christian society, to beautify the house of the Lord, to set up magistrates and rulers and officials to lead according to the word of God. And he goes and he says, I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Leading men. These are men who pick up their life. It's a 500 mile journey on foot from Babylon back to Jerusalem. They pick up their whole life, their families, and they risk it all for the mission. And what we see in chapter 8, after Ezra has gathered these leading men, we see a roster. Verses 1 through 20 are essentially a roster of these men who go back with the second wave. We saw first wave in chapter 2. This is the second wave of people leaving pagan Babylon, going back to rebuild the city of God. And as we read, as Steph read here, we see son of, son of, son of, right? You, you, you go... Um, the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, the sons of David, Hattush, and that's where I'm going to stop because I don't know the rest of the pronunciation, but you see son of, son of, son of, and the numbers accumulate, 200, 150 men, 300, 50, 70, 80 men, 218, 160, 28, 160, 70, 18, 20, 220, a lot of men. That's a lot of dudes headed to Jerusalem. Now, why the focus on men. We talked about this before. God, nothing is in the word of God by accident. It all serves a purpose. Why does Ezra painstakingly go through and document not only the number, but the names of these men that go with? Now, it's not because the Bible is anti-woman. It's not because Christianity or scriptures is misogynistic. That is a bad, that's bad theology to come to that conclusion. Because where we stand right now, the basis for women's rights is founded and rooted upon Christian doctrine. This is the absurdity of some of the secular ideology. They don't know what their heritage is. They don't know where the starting point was to build off of their whole ideology. The basis of women's rights is founded in the Imago Dei. Men and women are created in the image of God with equal dignity, value, and worth. This is the Imago Dei. 
This is the basis for women's rights. So the focus isn't here because God loves men more than he loves women. That's not the case at all. The focus is on men because God made men to lead. God made men to lead in their homes. Well, first, to lead themselves, to take responsibility for their own life, exercise self-control and responsibility. And as they do that, then they're equipped to go into their homes and lead to go into the church and lead. And generally speaking, to lead within the society. Though men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth, God has created men and women with unique and distinct God-given roles and responsibilities. Husbands are called to be the head of their wives, their household, to lead wives, to submit. You see this in Colossians chapter three. You see this in Ephesians chapter five. Elders are to be pastors. Elders, pastors, shepherds are to be men of a certain character, of certain qualification, of certain competency. These elders are called to lead the church, and though there is no direct statement as far as who should lead and govern in the state, historically, it's been predominantly men. Now, this does not mean that women cannot lead in any capacity. This does not mean women are unskilled to lead. I mean, all you need to do is step foot here in our church, go to a missional community, Show up for a couple weeks, and you can see God has given some of our best leaders are women. That couldn't be further from the truth, that, that women shouldn't lead in any capacity, that they're unskilled. But here, the scripture points, the primary responsibility, the chief burden of leadership falls upon men. This is the biblical idea of headship. You see it all over the place in the Old Testament, in places that are explicitly about leadership and how the house should be structured, and especially in the New Testament. Now, I realize that I am walking through a minefield right now. To say this, to to, to make these claims in an egalitarian society that we live in where women and men are totally interchangeable, that there is no distinction, there is no distinct role, there's no gender-specific nuance. I mean, to to do that, to to eliminate that is is absurd. All you have to do is look at physically how men and women are structured, how God has designed men and women to complement one another. God has made men bigger and stronger, generally speaking. Why? To protect, to be able to go make a living. God has designed women, generally speaking. Well, first of all, they got the equipment to bear babies, so there's that, but also to be nurturing. They're inclined towards compassion and nurturing. Physically speaking, you just look at it generally, and there are distinctions. In an egalitarian world, and we're seeing this right now, the transgender revolution, the LGBT agenda, they're doing away with any kind of distinction. And with that, there's no headship, there's no roles, there's no submission. It's like everybody's a Lego piece, like a gray Lego piece that you can just plug and play anywhere. Now, to stand up here and say the things that I'm saying, that's enough to get me canceled. That's enough to get my podcast pulled down off of Apple Podcasts. And, and it's, it's likely there are people in the room that as I present this biblical position that are offended, that are itching, squirming in their seats a little bit. But, but I need to, as a faithful minister of God's word, show you that God did not make an egalitarian world. It is very much from top to bottom, a complementarian world. You you don't even have to look at men and women to see that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, distinct. 
In the beginning, God created the land and the seas, distinct. In the beginning, God created male and female. They're distinct. God created a complementarian world. And dare I say this, patriarchal. God created a patriarchal world. In our society, that word might as well be a four-letter word. The word itself, patriarchal in Latin, means this. Patri is father, patri, patri, father, archi, led or ruled. So father, led, father, ruled. This is the way that God has designed the world to work. Fathers to lead. Adam was called to lead. Abraham, the father of a huge nation, called to lead. You see it all over the place. But in our society where we are indoctrinated by an anti-word of God demeanor, we see the word, we hear the word patriarchy, and instantaneously we say, that's wrong, that's evil, that's bad. And this is seeping into our culture at an incredibly fast rate. Like right now, men tend to be viewed as a liability. Men tend to be viewed as a menace. And what's happening right now through school systems and through just the general cultural influence, the water that we're swimming in here, there is a determent that's happening stopping boys from becoming men because that's dangerous. And I'm gonna say it, this ideology is primarily espoused by stiff-necked women and men with no backbone. People that are not standing upon the word of God. And here's the crazy part. The idea that if we can just flip this, that women get into more leadership roles, that, that if we build a matriarchy instead of a patriarchy, that things are gonna be a little bit better. But all you need to do is visit history, go read up on on Bloody Mary and see that a matriarchy can be just as destructive as a patriarchy. Now, since God made men to lead, men will always lead. It's unavoidable. Men will always lead. God made men to lead. They will do it. The question is, how will they lead? That's, that's the big question. That determines if it's a good thing, that patriarchy a good thing or an evil thing, a wicked thing. Men who lead righteously in accordance with the word of God open up a, a society that flourishes. Starts with a household, moves to the church, into the city. Men who lead wickedly will bring about themselves and others suffering and destruction. It's a domino effect and it all starts with men Men shape the society for better or for worse because God made men to lead. Now, the big problem, and this is why in some things I would jump on the side and say, yeah, this has gone wrong in a lot of ways. We've seen a lot of men forsake their true calling to rise up and to lead like godly men. And when men forsake their true calling, desolation is right behind it. Entropy, the slow unraveling. Now, th this, is, this is real time happening, folks. This is going on right now. You can drive down 16th Street, leave here after church, drive down 16th Street. There is a billboard, a government funded billboard that is encouraging fathers to be fathers. Why in the world does our government need to encourage fathers to be fathers? There's a manhood crisis. And when there's a manhood crisis, society pays the price for that bad patriarchy, that wicked patriarchy. You see this in statistics of jail population rising. It's scary, folks, to see the number of people, men and women, in prison 
and the, the correlation between did they grow up in a home with a father or without a father. You can see this in domestic abuse. Mental health issues are rising because fathers are neglecting. They're failing to rise up. Women and kids pay the price for this. When men fail to lead, they're forced to pick up the slack. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Now, I want to show you two primary ways that men are failing. One, and, and I think this is what we typically, like, when, when the word patriarchy comes to mind, this is the one that we typically attach onto, and rightly so, is the way of the tyrant. The way of the tyrant. The tyrant uses people for their own gain. The tyrant sets himself up at the top of the pyramid and everyone else is there to work toward their goal, their agenda, to serve them. They tend to be overbearing. They tend to, to suck the air out of the room, be joy stifling. They seek power. They operate as fear mongers. Everybody is just a little, every, a little bit on eggshells around them because you never know. They might blow off. They tend to be womanizers, child abusers, brawlers. The way of the tyrant, these men inflict actual harm on the people they are called to love and to serve. It's very destructive. Second, way men tend to fail to lead is in the way of the coward. They neglect and abdicate their God-given responsibility. They, they stand back. They, they don't pick up the heavy load they were meant to carry and stand back as the women and kids pick it up for them. They watch them struggle as they sit on their lazy boy watching MMA, cracking the Michelob Ultra, because that's what real men drink. Just kidding. <laughs> Couldn't be further from the truth. These are men that watch everybody else lay down their life while they stand back. They are, they are risk adverse. They don't like to do hard things, especially hard things for Jesus. And what contributes to this is a myriad of things. It could be laziness. That's just hard work. I don't like to work hard. Or I, I've already logged 40 hours this week. I don't think I can put anything else out. It could be apathy. Like they just don't have any, they don't have a heart of compassion for the people around them. They have no urgency to respond, to, to get in there and work. Or in some cases, it might just be ignorance. It's what they experienced growing up. They never had that father figure to show them, this is what men do. And because of that, it traps men in like permanent adolescence. Men who are constantly chasing entertainment. Men who would rather build a world in a video game than to step out and build something meaningful in this world. Men who hide behind Netflix and HBO whatever and all of the other streaming services. There. They'd rather sit there and just veg then go build something. To sit there and, and talk with their wife, to disciple their kids. These men easily get sucked into pornography because it's, it's much easier to just turn on a computer than it is to go actually pursue a woman. They just get stuck in this juvenile mindset. Now, the other side of this is there are some men that are cowards that are high-functioning, that are really, they're going out in the world and they're doing stuff, they're not lazy. But what happened is they have a misprioritization in their life. Their focus is misplaced. All of their energy gets directed at maybe it's work or sport or whatever that thing might be, hobby of whatever kind. All of their time, their focus goes into that thing. And on the back burner is their family. They, they find themselves sucked into worldly pursuit. 
Now, I think in the church, failure number two is the most common. I think failure number two, the the way of the coward, is the besetting sin of men in the church. And this is how you know, because you can look at almost every guy, every evangelical man and say, yeah, he's a nice guy, but he's kind of immature, a little bit boyish. He's kind of dragging his feet a little bit. And I want to suggest this is why the church, generally speaking, is in a dilapidated state. This is why the church of Jesus in North America is not flourishing the way that it ought to. Because men are dragging their feet and someone has to pick up the pieces. And you see this in in a lot of the mainstream denominations to the point where there are more women entering the ministry now than there are men. When men fail to be leaders in their home, when men fail to lead spiritually in their home, entropy lies in their wake. And it's to our shame because then women are forced to pull double duty. Because in that, men are treating women like a beast of burden and not his prize, not the glory of man, not the helper that God crafted just for him. And women, that, that's not a, a derogatory thing. That's how scripture speaks of women. Women, the glory of man. I told, told my wife this week, she was doing something and I was just blown away. I said, you are, you are my glory. God has made you for me and I am a better man because of that. And for a wife, a woman to be a helper, that's the same, that's the same. The helper language is not derogatory. It's the same language that's used for the Holy Spirit to be our helper. Now, when we look at these two ways that men are failing, both the way of the tyrant, the way of the coward are to be condemned. We should not balk or, 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 you know, fumble over our words like I'm doing right now to say, that is not right. We should condemn that. And, and, and unlike the cancel culture that we live in that just says, help, away with you, forever banished, In the gospel, we have a tool for redemption, that is repentance and faith. As we condemn the way of the coward, the way of the tyrant, we call these men to gospel repentance. We call the tyrant to humble themselves before the mighty hand of God, to understand their place. We call the man, the coward, up, man up, 1 Corinthians 15, be strong, act like men. Now the question is, who's gonna do this? Who's gonna call these men up to the plate? Whose responsibility does this fall to? And I wanna tell you this, the responsibility falls on godly men who are seeking the good beyond their own household. The people who call up the coward, the people who call up the tyrant are other godly men. Pastors, MC leaders, Christian friends, brothers, acting in the spirit of Galatians 6, verse one. Listen to this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, which both of those paths are sinful transgressions, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there's also a warning for these godly men who are seeking the good beyond their own household domain. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, it is a slippery slope to be a man who is walking on the path of righteousness. There's ditches on both sides of the road. But as we give ourselves to walking in the way of the Lord, to walking righteously, we can not only keep the path before us, but call men up onto that path with us. This is the kind of godly patriarchy the Bible not only commends, but necessitates. this, This is what godly patriarchy sounds like. Godly men in character, 
and virtue and skill, godly men leading in a godly manner for the benefit of all people. It's not just leading their own themselves. It's not just leading their own homes, though that is their top priority. Men, our priority is with our own homes. In fact, the qualifications of being an elder is to have his household in order. And if he can't do that, then how is he going to lead the house of God? Our home is our top priority. But the church should also profit from these godly men leading in a godly manner. And as the church profits and grows and matures, flourishes, it will affect the society positively. This is the domino effect. For, for better or for worse, this is for better. Now, we've talked about this um, the last couple weeks because the whole story of Reformation, when we start Ezra chapter 6, it's about reformation, not just within the temple, but the whole society being reformed. And there's three things that are necessary for reformation to take place. One is the word of God. Number two is the hand of God, the providence of God. And number three is men of God. Now this does not exclude women. This does not exclude kids. Women and children have a part to play in the health and the well-being and the mission of the church. There are no spectators. But men are called up to lead. And as men are called up to lead and do so in a godly manner, it elevates and incorporates women and children. Godly men give direction. Godly men bless those whom they lead. Godly masculinity creates room and provokes godly femininity. Godly masculinity trains children in the way of the Lord and shoots them out like arrows. Church, if we want reformation, if we want to be part of something that maybe someday they'll, they'll write about in the history books, if we want to be part of that, regardless of the history books, but for our own joy, for our own sake, for the good of our city, we need more godly, Jesus-honoring men. We need more godly fathers who emulate their heavenly father. We need more brothers who act like our older brother, Jesus. These are the dudes that Ezra is going after here. These are the, the, the leading men that Ezra collects to go and transform a society. And with them are women and children, of course, but the responsibility falls on the men to gather them to go to Jerusalem and rebuild. Now, Ezra knew this. Ezra knew this. Where the father goes, the family flows. Where the father goes, the family flows. They're like rudders on a ship. That, that father can change the direction. Just one, one person on a whole, entrep or a whole uh, enterprise of a ship can change the direction. Boom, like that. And this is backed up by statistics. Listen to this. When a mother goes to church, and she's the one who's, who's sort of pioneering the sort of Sunday gathering, participating, when a mother is the one that's driving the ship in that direction to church, only 17% of the time does the family go with her, the whole family, including the father. Only 17% of the time. When a father is the one that's leading in that direction, 93% of the time, the whole family goes with him. 93% of the time. Where the father goes, the family flows, which backs up this. If you want to see a society change, if you want to change a culture, whether it's a church, whether it's a business, it starts with godly men. We need biological and spiritual fathers who lay down their life so others would live. Now, this is what we're seeing in verses 1 through 14 of Ezra. All these men, they, they, they got swept up in the vision of creating this better world to work for flourishing. They're coming out of a pagan society where it's all unwinding. It's all, it's, all, it's all entropy there. It's all falling apart. And they have this vision to see a world that moves towards flourishing, human flourishing. 
a humanity as, as God intended it to be. And so these godly men get swept up in the vision. They're convicted by the spirit. They're compelled for this, this thing of a better world and they go, they go. And as Ezra's surveying, they, they all camp together. They're getting ready to do this big old track back to Jerusalem. And Ezra surveys the men who shows up and he realizes there are no Levites there. And the Levites are the ones who are responsible for maintenance of the temple. They weren't priests, but they served the temple in sort of allowing the priests to do what the priests needed to do. And Ezra looks at the camp and he realized there are no Levites here. While some men will come naturally, other men, like these Levites that we see in verse 15 through 20, will need to be recruited. These men need to be called up. They need to be trained. They need to be discipled. They need to be invited. Come give yourself to this kind of life. Consider this your invitation. If you find yourself failing, the call that God has placed upon you as a man, whether it's the way of the tyrant or the way of the, call, the coward, here is your invitation. Stand up, be strong. Act like godly men. Come, come with us. Repent of your sin. Come with us and reform. See, this church, the future of this church rides on godly men. Our ability to train, to unleash this kind of men. And these are the kind of men that we're continually, forever, going to be calling up. Now, not everybody's there. That's why discipleship is this pro progressive journey with Jesus of growing into what we were intended to be. But this is your invita invitation to come. Come be part of something that will last forever. Now, let me close up with this. What does it mean to be a godly man? There's three traits that we see in Ezra. These three traits of, of this godly men. Verse 16, acknowledge these are leading men. These are men who know their God-given influence, their God-given responsibility to be the tip of the arrow, the arrowhead that, that blazes a path forward. These men know they have influence and they use it rightly as leading men. This is the biblical idea of headship. It's, it's the, the, where the head goes, the body goes. Where the head moves, the body's going to move. So as the head of the household, fathers, use that. Lead your family in a Godward direction. And know that your influence can be multiplied. Just, oh, I wish I had time to talk about this, but it's unbelievable how God can take one generation and set a whole new trajectory. And generations after generations after generations flow from that. The domino effect. Where you go, your family will go. They need to be leading men. Godly men are leading men. To lead well, you need to be a man of insight and a man of discretion, as they acknowledge in verse 16 and verse 18. Those are the men that Ezra is looking for, these men of insight, these men of, uh, of discretion. There are too many foolish men in this world. There are too many foolish men that have bought into a counterfeit of masculinity. We need to be wise. We need wise men. James 1 says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask for it. The God of wisdom will give it to you. And he'll provide very generously. Now, one of the places, actually the place where wisdom is most concentrated is the word of God. If you want to be a godly man, you will be a man of the word. You will devour your Bible. You'll read it, the stuff you don't understand, you'll go and ask, hey, can you show me what this means? You'll find solutions, you'll find, you'll find explanations. You'll feast on the word of God, other ways to go about this, to, to grow in wisdom. Every year during the academic year, we roll out this thing called Porterbrook. It's our in-house leadership developed thing for men and women, but there are some key building blocks for how you become a godly man or woman. 
Give yourself to something like that. Intense study. Read Christian books. Leaders are readers. Because more insightful people have come before us and they can show us the way. They can help us. They can either show us what to avoid or what to give ourselves to. Another place where we can grow in wisdom and insight and discretion is amongst the band of brothers. To give ourselves to community. Other, other men, we call these fight clubs here at Sacred City, uh, groups for men and women that gather together to work through some of the, the stuff, the intricacies of following Jesus and the everyday stuff of life, whether it's in the workplace or at home or wherever else we find ourselves, to be accountable, to give people permission and access to our lives, to, to press in when we are in sin, to call us to repent. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have to be wise men, and God gives wisdom. And here's the thing, as you seek wisdom, we tend to think wisdom as this conceptual thing. It's just like information and raw facts, and you know, here's what works best. But when you seek wisdom, you will seek Christ. You seek wisdom, you'll find Christ. Jesus is wisdom personified. Wisdom in the flesh. He is the ideal man, perfect in every way. Not one time in his life did he give himself to the way of the tyrant nor the way of the coward. Jesus shows us what a godly man looks like, holy and blameless, walking upright in righteousness. He models godly masculinity being both tough and tender. Jesus isn't this sissy. He is tough, but his heart is full of compassion. His, his spine is made of steel. He is the man who walks through the valley of the shadow of death and fears no evil. And Jesus is not just a model of like, oh, hey, I hope I can be like him someday. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the man that we all need. You see, that's the thing. We all need a man. That's the whole the feminist ideology, I don't need a man. No, we all need a man. And Pilate says, as Jesus is standing there, he's been betrayed, he's been on a trial that's unjust. Pilate stands there and says, behold the man. And that's prophetic. He didn't mean it. But those words, behold the man, because that's what everybody must do. Behold the man. The man who lays down his life for the undeserving. The man who lays down his life for the weak and the vulnerable, the broken, the sinner. And Jesus takes our place as a substitute. Jesus says, he, he, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to, to give my life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus said, I have a ministry. I have, the word ministry means servant, service. Jesus said, I have a role to play. I was a servant. I was a minister. And when Jesus serves you, when Jesus ministers to your heart, your heart will become reformed. And when your heart's reformed, you want to emulate him. You want to serve him. You become men, specifically, a ministering man that you see in verse 17. The kind of men that stand up and say, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. The kind of men who pray for our families. The kind of men that see to the spiritual flourishing of our households. The kind of men who contribute to the mission within the church. The kind of men that create a different kind of culture within the city. The kind of men that disciple our wives. That wash her with the water of the word. The kind of men who are committed to her more than any other woman. She's the standard of beauty. The kind of men who disciple their kids that they use every opportunity to point to Jesus. 
The kind of men who train their kids over the 18 years that you have them in the household. So by the time they're ready to leave the house, you can shoot them out with confidence, knowing that their hearts are secure in Christ. So that they would be future culture shapers. Be the next generation who leads in the church and the city and promote the good and the flourishing. This is the kind of godly man that we need if we want reformation. And these are the kind of men that Jesus makes through the gospel. We all come broken. We all have our our insufficiencies. We all have our failures. Jesus takes rough around the edges men and he shapes them up to be somebody, a man that he can use for his mission. The apostles, bunch of hooligans, guys. We look at the 12 apostles and we think like there's some sort of all-stars. At the beginning, they're a bunch of weirdos. They got nothing going from uneducated men and guess what happens? God uses these men to turn the world upside down and he'll do it again. Men, are you willing, willing to step up? Are you ready to step up? The, the next five years, 10 years, 50 years of this church depends on men stepping up. And when men step up, it creates the opportunity for women to flourish, for women to do what they were good, what they're good at, what they're meant to do. We must lead our homes well. It is a noble thing to aspire to eldership, to, to expand your influence from beyond the household into the household of God. Jesus, by making you a man, has called you into this. Jesus, by saving you, has equipped you to be this kind of man. People are counting on you. Let's pray. Father, we'd be lost, totally lost. So lost without you. It's because the man Jesus Christ came and lived and died that we have hope. We have hope for our eternal future and we have hope for our immediate future that by the grace of God, which works powerfully in us, can bring about things that, that go far beyond our wildest imagination. I pray, Father, you would raise up men today, that this would be a holy provocation where men would be known for their repentance and their faith, that men would give themselves to something that will last forever. And we do this not to earn favor in your eyes, not to prove ourselves and try to work off our own daddy issues. We do this because we in Christ are fully accepted by God the Father. Help us to live out of that acceptance. Help us to live out of our identity as men of God. We pray, Lord, that you would work mightily both in us and through us for your glory and for our good and for the good of our society. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.